I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Explain exactly who you are to the uninformed listener who might say, why are we interviewing a guy named David French? <laughs> Yeah. Who's David French? Who might you ask is David French? Who exactly is David French? Who the heck is David French? Who is David French? Over Memorial Day weekend in 2016, that was the big question on lips of the Washington media elite. The biggest question. It was burning up Washington. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And to start off, let's set the scene. Back in the spring of 2016, you'll remember, the Never Trump movement was getting desperate. Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush had been stripped of their dignity. Ted Cruz's path to nomination looked bleak. And the Never Trumpers were coming to the realization that if there was any hope of stopping the Donald, it was going to have to come in the form of a third-party candidate. They were desperate. Quite. It was into this shitstorm that on Sunday, May 29th, Weekly Standard editor Bill Kristol, one of the most vocal anti-Trump voices on the right, Drop the following tweet. Just a heads up, over this holiday weekend, there will be an independent candidate, an impressive one, with a strong team and a real chance. An amazing Crystal impersonation there. Who could Crystal be talking about? That was the buzz across the media landscape. After all, Mitt Romney and various other big names had already said they weren't going to be running. So who was Crystal's mystery selection? Well, two days after Crystal's tweet, we found out exactly who he had in mind. The name we're talking about is David French, not exactly a household name. He is known in some conservative circles. David French, (laughs) constitutional lawyer, National Review writer, Iraq war veteran and Christian conservative. I think he was on the cover of People at one point. (laughs) Not the worst resume you could have as a Republican candidate. But it was hard not to see the announcement as a bit of a letdown. With all due respect to Bill Crystal's political judgment, it looks like David French may have a little bit of work to do. Name recognition aside, for a few short days in June, David French got to experience what it's like to go from largely unknown conservative writer to national presidential candidate. What it's like to be praised and mocked in the media, to contemplate turning your own life completely upside down, and what it's like when an army of online alt-right Trump supporters suddenly decide in unison that you are their enemy. Welcome to Candidate Confession. So I was the guy uh, that was floated very briefly for uh, about seven to ten days in the summer of 2016 as a potential independent challenger coming from the right as a conservative to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Uh, Bill Kristol floated my name out there, um, and for you know a few days, uh, I would say about forty-eight hours, I was the subject of a furious round of googling. Who is David French? <laughs> and what did, what would they have found? Well, uh, what they'd have found is uh, I was a writer at National Review, a constitutional lawyer, a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom during the surge in 0708 when I served when the uh, with the Third Armored Cavalry Regiment. Uh, I was never Trump. I was a guy who, uh, gosh, I think February, March had said, I can't support him even if he's the GOP nominee and had written a lot about that. Uh, and so that that would have been pretty clear. They would have known as a constitutional lawyer. I was mainly, uh, I had defended the First Amendment, free speech rights, uh, free exercise of religion, freedom of association, also a pro-life lawyer, founded uh, the first, I think the first uh, dedicated pro-life club at Harvard Law School. Uh, so that that was my background. So um, notably absent from that resume of yours is um, 
any elected political experience. Had you ever run for office prior to your name being voted as a presidential candidate? Uh, if you define running for office, running for the president of the Lipscomb University student body in 1990, <laughs> or, yeah, that that was that was it. It was a short, glorious three to four day campaign, about exact, exactly as long as I was floated in this particular in 2016. Wait, really? Yeah, so, wait, his run for student body was a three to four day It was four only three campaign. to four. That's, that's your three limit. Three to four days. Yeah, yeah. That's I can't as long handle as anything more than go. that. <laughs> Yeah, three to four day campaign asking that the school be uh, more focused on teaching Christian service and not just Christian theology. Um, and it was close, but I lost. And wait, did you have a slogan or, or like make? Oh, go- gosh, no. Gosh, no. I had no slogan. I had no buttons. I had no signs. I just gave a speech at chapel and expected to win. So. No war room. <laughs> no war room. No, no, get out, research. no get out the vote. Um, <laughs> Nothing. So. Let's skip forward a lot. Um, you go from there to you know, this career in constitutional law. You become a writer for the National Review. How did you get from that point to having your name being even discussed as a presidential candidate? Yeah, well, you know, that that actually came about pretty quickly. Um, I went down to Washington with a good friend of mine named John Kingston, and we met with Bill for dinner, and and Bill just talked us through all that had happened. Told us, you know, that Mitt had said no, um, and and we just started brainstorming it. What can we do from here? And and Bill started talking about the research that his team had put together, and the research was interesting. It said, "Hey, look, this is a anti-establishment time. Record dissatisfaction with both of these candidates, and uh, if somebody came from outside, then." And their name was known. In other words, people knew who they were. They could start at 20%, 22%. Again, if they got known, if they knew, if people knew who they were. And if you could maintain that kind of or attain that kind of uh, support, you could get on the debate stage. I believe the threshold was what? Something around 15%. You could get on the debate stage. If you got on the debate stage, then you're serious. Then anything can happen. And he walked through the profile of who that person could be. And that person was from outside the Beltway, somebody who had post 9-11 military service, ideally, uh, somebody who had, you know, although conservative, could credibly come to Americans and say, uh, you know, I've reached out, I've supported people on both sides of the aisle. And, uh, you know, and I, I just agreed in principle that a person like that sounds great. A person like that could actually make a splash in the race. And, I unfortunately had to leave the dinner a little bit early, so I took off, headed back up, um, got a train back to New York, and unbeknownst to me, John and, and Bill are talking afterwards, and Bill says, well, what about David? And John, my friend, <laughs> says, uh, yeah, I could, I could see it. And the next morning I woke up and Bill had put a piece in the Weekly Standard that said, you know, look, we don't need a famous big name. We just need somebody who has, we need somebody with the right biography and the right values and the right talents. And somebody like, for example, my friend David French, (laughs) which stunned me. It absolutely stunned me when I saw it. Uh, But then later that same day, we had a phone conversation and he said, I'm completely serious about this. And that's when I said, uh, okay, if you're serious about this, I'm, I'll seriously think about it. Did, did anything give you pause in terms of the, the polling that Crystal had produced? Just because it does seem kind of a little bit idealistic, this blank slate, you know, military experience, outsider, someone that sort of checks all the boxes would automatically get 20%. Did any part of you think that was a little too idealistic? Uh, here, here's what I thought was idealistic about it. I think there are well, two things. One is polling about third party candidates, I think always in the abstract exaggerates their support um, because there's always a sort of underlying discontent with the two parties and frustration with the two parties. But I also knew that, you know, this was a cycle that perhaps there was a greater chance than other cycles to make a difference. And I mean, did it also give you pause that Romney and Ben Sass said no, that Crystal had been sort of shopping this idea for months uh, to no avail? 
Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> you know, look, Mitt, Mitt had just been through a run where he was the GOP nominee with all of the advantages of the GOP nominee. And he'd come close, but he'd lost. And I think there's a real concern uh, from both of them that, you know, what's their realistic outcome here? The realistic outcome here is you divide the GOP vote, you divide the conservative vote, and then you just end up handing the race to Hillary Clinton. So you have this dinner with Crystal. Yeah. You go home. You don't think that your name's going to get discussed as a presidential candidate, let alone put in print as a possible template for one. And yet there it happens. Yeah. (laughs) So you see it. I guess you probably had a little... Well, I mean, I'm curious. What did you think when you saw it? And then what were your next steps? Uh, well, I mean, I was flabbergasted. I, you know, I had two thoughts. Uh, one was, well, I can't believe that happened. <laughs> and then the other thought was, you know, maybe, maybe. Uh, because what you have to realize is, and, and I think if you went back and read what I was writing at that time, I was really distraught about what was happening to the Republican Party. I was really distraught about what was happening to the conservative movement, uh, and especially to the evangelical conservative movement that I've been a part of my whole adult life. And to see people throwing in with Donald Trump uh, unabashedly, enthusiastically, but also knowing that there were an awful lot of evangelical voters who really were extremely deeply reluctant to back him. And, you know, I, so part of me was thinking, you know, look, uh, this is a, this is a, a unique time in American history. And I think the American people need an alternative. And if nobody's going to step up to be an alternative, could I do it? Maybe. Huh. And I told him that, and I said, well, let me, as quickly and as seriously as possible, because time's of the essence here, um, think this through step by step. And I think the first step is to talk to my family. Um, The next step is then to sort of tell you everything about myself, good, bad, and ugly, and see if you still think I can Well, let's stop right here. What did you say to your family? (laughs) I said, uh, because they'd already read, my my wife and and my older kids had already read the the, uh, Weekly Standard piece, and so... I just basically went back and said, you know, that's a real thing. I mean, and, and, and Bill is Bill's serious about it. Uh, what do you think? Your, and Your wife didn't roll her eyes at this. So like, this is well, ridiculous. <laughs> she's, uh, she's been around me long enough to know that uh, I, I come, I'll come at her every now and then with ridiculous ideas. Sometimes they're crazy ideas, but they're good ideas. Um, like, you know, I had the crazy idea, which was ended up being one of the best ideas I ever had, um, to join the army as an older guy, get an age waiver and join and volunteer to go to Iraq, which is to this day, I think one of the best decisions of my life. And she was on board with that. Um, and so, you know, we're both the kind of people that says, if we, if, if we believe something deeply, we don't necessarily want to sit back and let other people and urge other people do it to do it. We kind of feel that we dispositionally we're dispositionally inclined to say, well, let's walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And and so she said, well, you know, look, I'm open to it. I mean, it'll be six months of hell, <laughs> but uh, we can do that. Uh, let's just sort of see if it's possible. And so then that led to the, the next step, the sort of, okay, Bill, here's the good, bad, and ugly about myself. And, and, uh, what was, was the, the ugly? Yeah, what was the ugly? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> Jason and I both had the same question. Yeah, right. So, you know, there wasn't really too much ugly, it was more like quirky. Um, Let it I, out. <laughs> I, I, I would be, I would be, uh, if I became like in, in any elected office, I, I'd say I'd be one of the first gamer Americans, uh, nerd Americans to uh, hold office. Uh, I, I've been profiled in a video game magazine for my prowess in the uh, massively multiplayer online role playing game World of Warcraft. Um, not sure a lot of people would would quite get that. Um, you know, and I've also Did Bill not, get that? Did Bill get that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's there's a certain demographic that would latch onto that, but uh, um, Bill was. But part yeah, of that I've, I've I've not always I've not been living my whole life to be a, a candidate, and so the other thing is, 
man, I have written a lot of stuff. And if you went back and you read my National Review archive, I have not written the kind of careful stuff that someone writes when they're saying, what, if I say this, will this come back to haunt me in a political campaign? And I just said, Bill, I have absolutely shared my opinion on almost everything you can imagine, up to and including Game of Thrones in all my writing. And so it's just going to be a gold mine for people who want to cast me as, you know, a wingnut conservative Christian. And sure enough, it's funny, one of my favorite pieces that was written in the entire seven, eight day arc of all of this was a GQ piece analyzing my Game of Thrones recaps. That's amazing. Um, so you have these conversations, you go through the uh, good, the bad, and the ugly. And at some point, you have to tell Bill, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to do this. Um, how, how, how far after the initial dinner did that decision come? Well, I didn't say ever, I'm going to do it. I just said, well, let's go, let's keep exploring this. And so, so at this point, it just is starting to get more real. This is something that might actually happen. After the break, Bill Crystal issues his infamous tweet. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'll never forget I'm at dinner and a tweet comes down from Bill. Much ado about this tweet here from Bill Crystal, the editor of the conservative magazine, The Weekly Standard. Uh, he tweeted, just a heads up over this holiday weekend, there will be an independent candidate, an impressive one with a strong team and a real chance. And I'm looking at that tweet and I know he's talking about me. And I showed it to my wife and I think all the color drained out of our faces at that point because we knew immediately what was going to happen next. Trump calling Crystal, quote, a dummy. Can't allow lightweights to set up a spoiler indie candidate, he tweeted. And sure enough, I mean, it wasn't five to ten minutes after that tweet went out. And I look at my phone and it's a uh, 202 number, a DC number. And I let it ring through and I, I uh, listen to the voicemail and it's Robert Costa from The Washington Post. Uh, so he had done, he'd put two to, two and two together. He he had read the Bill Crystal Weekly Standard piece. He read the Bill Crystal tweet and he says, oh, I wonder if that's David French he's talking about. And so he, he called me. I didn't return his call, uh, but that wasn't the first call that I started I started getting. And I, I, I shut all that down. I wasn't answering the phone unless I knew what, who the number was. Um, and then I... Then I got serious really fast about, okay, I got to make this decision because this is going to leak out sooner rather than later. And I, I need to accelerate this decision-making process. I think the tweet came out on May 29th. And then there was a story that was sort of circ- going to come out in Bloomberg on May 31st. And can you tell us about that exchange with the yeah. reporter? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. This is kind of where so, it got serious. One of the central messages of a campaign, if we did a campaign, was going to be integrity, integrity, integrity. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to tell the truth. I will be transparent. I will, you know, again, so trying to be a contrast to these other two major party nominees. And the phone rings, and I think it's uh, our national, uh, someone from National Review. 
And I answer, and it's Mark Halperin from Bloomberg. Mm. And I'm oh, crap. And <laughs> and he, so he says, um, so I have two sources independently pegging you as Bill Crystal's choice as a third-party candidate. And he said, um, do you, you know, do you confirm this or do you not, you, you know, do you have any comment? And I said, very, I was kind of stumbling in my words and I said something super inarticulate, like, no, I really maybe don't want to kind of talk about that right now. Okay. And he said, can I quote you? I really don't maybe kind of, <laughs> <want."> <laughs> I said, no, 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 just, I don't have any comment. And then he said, um, well, here's my quote. So he read his quote, uh, about what that he he'd already written the article and he said do you deny uh that you're considering which is you know a great way of phrasing the question and i immediately had this quandary because if i if i said i deny it you know maybe i buy myself some time and and if i don't you know i have an opportunity to really still put my name out there or to not go through the life change that occurs if if your name is even floated and then i thought are you kidding me here? I'm thinking about running a campaign based on integrity. And the very first question I'm asked in the campaign, I'm thinking about lying. It's ridiculous. So I said, no, I don't deny it. And he goes, look for uh, look for my story in 15 minutes. And I think it was maybe like five or six or seven minutes later, it popped up. Ooh, a crucial 10 minutes early there. Yeah, right. Changes everything. And, and then... Uh, well, he he just had it. I mean, you know, he had. I'm sure he had it all preloaded and just had to insert my comment and press publish. But um, so it's out, and at that point, uh, everything changes. According to our sources, we can now report that the man being eyed by Crystal is a conservative lawyer, writer, and Iraqi war veteran named David French. You've probably not heard of him. We hadn't either. I do not regret at all, for the record, telling him the truth. I'm just. It was just unfortunate that I answered the phone. You mentioned that you only had one chance to say hello, which would make a great song. So maybe think about that. <laughs> I know you're in Nashville. Uh, but it does seem like you already had no control over whatever decision you were going to be making. Bill Crystal floated your name before t- without telling you. He does the tweet, which everybody kind of figured out was you, about you. And then there's this story. And I'm wondering if you had already sort of sense that events were sort of overtaking you, that that you didn't have actually control of your own message, your own Hello, if you will. Yeah, um, yes and no. Uh, so, of course, when the tweet comes out, uh, you know, that's not something I did. That's not something that I expected. That launches a process that I'm not in control of that leads to a phone call, you know, that uh, I didn't want to have that conversation at that time. But you also have to understand, I mean, I can put on the brakes at any time and I can press the gas at any time. I mean... It's not like I'm some sort of puppet uh, at the end of Bill Crystal's string. But I mean, you can't I, put on the brakes. I mean, these things were happening, and you were involved in it, and it began to become this, you know, I don't say shitstorm. It became a storm. <laughs> it was just becoming big and bigger and bigger. Right. I mean, I could, but see, the thing was I was actually considering it. So when I say I could have put on the brakes, I could have at any point, that first phone call from Robert Costa, I could have picked up the phone and answered it, and he says, is this you? And I'd say, no. I'm not doing this. No way. I'm super flattered that Bill Crystal would mention me in his piece, but no, I'm not doing it. So that's what I'm saying. At any point, I could have said no. But did you at all tell Crystal, hey, pump the brakes a bit here with the tweets? You know, like, can you chill out for a second while I figure this out? Well, Bill was not uh, super involved in the process at that point because he tweeted that out from the tarmac as he was about to fly he was to in Israel. Israel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Bill Israel. just puts this, like, grenade in the middle of the American <laughs> political system and then walks to walks away, goes to Israel, and lets you deal with the fallout? I, I wouldn't call it We like Bill, but, I mean, that's... Yeah, he's like, that's shalom, <laughs> peace out. <laughs> I wouldn't... I don't know. It's almost like a mic drop. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it certainly uh, accelerated and, and uh, put the process on steroids. There's sure. no doubt about it. But, you know, look, I I like Bill a great deal respect Bill a great deal. I'm not upset about this. Uh, I, um, you know, what? It, let me say this. It, In hindsight, it had a beneficial effect. And that beneficial effect was to immediately impress upon you the gravity of the decision. Sure. And the impact that it will have on the, bo- on the body politic. 
you said you mentioned you talked to pollsters and potential staffers. Had you had lined up a pollster or a campaign manager or, you know, what what part of the infrastructure that every campaign needs had you developed by that point in time? Yeah. So I would not say that what you had, Bill didn't have what I would say like a turnkey operation, like insert candidate, turn the key and it goes on. But he had an infrastructure that he had constructed as part of this process. And I was working within that infrastructure. Through that, we were talking to pollsters, election lawyers, potential funders, uh, potential campaign directors. We had a pretty good sized group of people in a room working through all of this. Uh, and, and some folks went out there and, and so the I was not I was still making the decision, so I wasn't heading on to Hannity or onto Megan Kelly's show or any or Jake Tapper's show to talk about myself, but a lot of people were wanting to know, well, who is this David French? Be honest with me. When you heard it was David French that he was talking about, what was your first reaction? Uh, it was who? I mean, I had to double check. Did he really mean the guy from National Review? Well, from all uh, reports, he's a wonderful human being. He uh, volunteered for service. So you don't Iraq. know who he is either. I have to be honest. It came out uh, just after our, my show yesterday, and we all went to our computers to look up David French to make sure we knew who we were talking about. That was the biggest result of this story, 10,000 people Googling David French. Uh, with all due respect to, to him, uh, uh, this is ridiculous. You, you, the deadline has passed to be on the ballot in Texas. There is a ticket. The Liberty party ticket is not one but two former Republican governors well, on it. Then Johnson. It, it seems it seems silly to go down this road. How does somebody with very little name recognition battle as an independent candidate? Well, let's be honest, there is no pathway for David French. So there was this battle that was immediately erupting that was sort of along the lines of, well, who is David French? Um, well, He's a nobody. He has no Wikipedia page. He's a nobody. He's not checkmarked, verified on Twitter. He's a wingnut. He's a anti-Trump guy who just wants to hand the election to Hillary. It's, you know, so that battle was fighting. And uh, when the story comes out, how soon did you start checking the internet, checking Twitter, checking the comments <laughs> of the story? And what did that do to you just to read what random people were talking about? Okay, so this is just my... My free advice to anyone who's ever considering running and finds themselves on the public eye, whatever whatever you do, do not do what I did. So either commit to being engaged and informed in real time as the debate is unfolding, or commit to unplugging from it to make a decision and trust the people, your friends and colleagues who are out there fighting for you, or don't do what I did, which was unplug for 90% of the day and then right when the day is winding down and you should be getting much needed rest, then opening your Twitter app and then starting to go down that rabbit hole at, you know, at midnight and start reading everything that's been said, which if you're a human being, I mean, if you're a normal human being, even somebody with a relatively thick skin, that is, you know, that's opening Pandora's box. I mean, that that's, you're getting alternatively mad um, you know, uh, gra- thankful, uh, grateful, as you see what people are saying, exasperated, frustrated. And that just, comp- you know, that just destroys any rest you're going to have. So either commit or withdraw. Don't go halfway into this. It got pretty rough for you. Um, some of the Trump supporters went after your family, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's really unfortunate uh, is that that was not new. It just went to a new level Um, because I had been, even when I was sort of in the stage of saying, if Trump gets the nomination, I'll support him. I had gone after his alt-right supporters and I had gone after the alt-right. And when I did that, it was horrific. The the blowback online was just horrific. I mean, uh, my youngest daughter... At the, t- uh, at the time, she's uh, when this first started, she was only, s- when I first got the blowback, she was only seven years old. Seven-year-old daughter, she's African-American, and she was, pictures of her face that they lifted from social media were photoshopped into gas chambers with a picture of Donald Trump in a Nazi uniform pressing the button to, to kill her. 
Um, my wife has a blog on Pathios, which is a religious website, and they found that blog and they deluge the comment section with uh, with pictures, with videos of African American men and women getting murdered or committing suicide. It was horrific. I mean, it was it was the kind of stuff that had I not been in Iraq and seen worse things with my own eyes would be scarring for life. That kind that kind of imagery. Fortunately, I was able to delete it before my wife saw any of it. So that had all happened before all of this. And so when this was announced, it restarted all of those images on Twitter. Uh, not the death images, thankfully, but the gas chamber images, other things like that. The explicitly racist attacks on my daughter. They started again from this alt-right movement that was supporting Donald Trump. And then from the left, I didn't get anything like that. Um, I had a Politico reporter who, you know, everyone's sort of furiously doing their research on who is this guy. And he comes across an interview about the relate, the agreements my wife and I had made when we deploy, when I deployed to Iraq about faithfulness and fidelity in that really stressful time. And he, he, he took an excerpt from an interview, didn't do any further research and sort of cast me out there saying, that I had ordered my wife not to talk to any men or email any men while I was uh, deployed overseas, which was not accurate. And so, and then in a whole other part of the universe, I'm this sort of weirdo wingnut who's trying to control his, his wife. And so that was happening left and right at that same time. Did anyone ever physically uh, threaten you? Did anyone show up at your house? Or was this all online? Um, well, a couple of particularly disturbing things happened, and, and this it was actually a little bit later, even after we had said no, um, that I was not going to run. One thing was, I'm literally flying home after all of this. Nancy turns, Nancy's my wife's name, she turns on her phone and uh, on disembarking from the plane, and an email she gets is from a Trump supporter, I believe, in Georgia, and he basically says, you guys need to shut up. If you don't shut up, I'm a veteran, and I know which end of the gun the the round comes out of. Um, and so we had a relationship. We have a great relationship with our local law enforcement. We immediately notified them of that, and they they investigated it. Um, and then a, a couple of weeks later, um, the, and this is perhaps the strangest and most disturbing thing that happened. My wife is on the phone uh, with her dad, my father-in-law, who's. Um, super, he, you know, super awesome, just country boy from the hills of East Tennessee, not political, great guy. And they're just talking about normal life. And somebody breaks into the phone call itself and starts screaming at my wife um, and, and cursing at her and saying pro-Trump uh, things and then hangs up. Extremely bizarre. Um, which again, that that we actually contacted the FBI about because that was incredibly bizarre. And, and what was the explanation uh, for how that even happened? Uh, unknown, unknown. That's I mean, crazy. The, the best explanation is that they, because my my father in law was on a wireless phone at his house and not a cell phone, that there was some inter signal hack or interference from that end. It'd be highly unusual to hack into an actual cell phone like my wife was talking about. I mean, I'd never even heard of that. But she was deeply shaken by that. I mean, that you you can only imagine how that would shake somebody um, when that occurred. When you were talking to your sort of new team or possible team uh, about running, did this stuff come up about how to address these issues, how to address the racism uh, that was, you know, these attacks against you? Did that come up as a part of your strategy in, in dealing? Well. With that? It, it came up as a big as a as a real factor as I was thinking through the possibility of running because once you see now by this time my daughter's uh she was seven when these attacks first happened by this time she's eight and you see her face popping up again online and some of the most vicious racist imagery i'd ever seen in my entire life and you start to say okay guys let's just get real uh i don't want to be in a situation where i'm out uh my family's out in public and Trump supporters track down these alt-right Trump supporters track down my family and start screaming these things and saying these things to my children, particularly my youngest daughter. I said that 
I, that would be extraordinarily traumatic uh, for my daughter. And this wasn't far-fetched because um, Eric Erickson, who was also an anti-Trump, uh, right, who, would, who was also part of the Never Trump movement, maybe, I think he even coined the term Never Trump, had had uh, people yell at his family in public places. And so this kind of thing um, was a, a live issue. And we talked about how could we insulate and protect my daughter from this process as much as possible. And that was a huge concern of mine. Was there also discussions about how to combat it, how to speak out about it? I mean, Hillary Clinton gave a speech sort of totally devoted to the alt-right and talking about the sort of discourse that Trump was sort of stirring up and the hate that was stirring up uh, among his uh, fans. Um, yeah. Was there ever a discussion like, if I run, I want to give that speech, I want to attack the alt-right? Or were they like, don't do that? Don't oh, no, up. that was going to be – we were going to hit that head on. I mean, that that was going to be a huge part of – the attack wasn't going to be so much the alt-right because I, at that point, and I'm still not convinced how big the movement is. It has a disproportionate online presence. Certainly going to attack the alt-right. But, you know, the kinds of rhetoric that Trump himself used, I mean, and it was, you know, what, only about a week after uh, the I said no that he came out and attacked, you know, this quote-unquote Mexican judge. He's like an American judge who, who had actually, you know, risked his life as a I believe, you know, at one point had to go into hiding when he was a prosecutor for his work against drug cartels. So this is a guy who, you know, has a record of sacrificial service to his country, who's an American, and and Trump goes after him because of his heritage. I mean, we're going to take that kind of stuff absolutely head on and swing at him absolutely head on about that. I mean, did any part of you sort of begin to sort of rethink and second guess the conservative movement and how it may have allowed this alt-right thing to flourish. I mean, the National Review is not exactly liberal on civil rights issues, uh, has a history uh, there. And I'm wondering if there was some soul searching among you and your colleagues there or just among the conservative movement about what had happened and and this result. Well, I think there's a lot of soul searching in the conservative movement more broadly about the whole Trump phenomenon. I, I think that that's absolutely a true statement. Regarding the alt-right, I have to honestly say, I think that I was taken by surprise that about its existence. I think uh, all of my colleagues that I've talked to about it, we were taken by surprise by its existence. This is not something that was on our radar screen as existing within the conservative movement because it's not part of any conservative movement um, discussion, debate, dialogue, um, conversation that I've ever been a part of. All right. So Bill Crystal's first tweet was May 29th. By June 5th, you have decided that this is not, this is, you're not going to do this. You're not going right. to run for president. Um, how much of that decision was based on the stuff that you and Jason were talking about? Just this vitriol coming at you and your family and the, clear presence of the alt-right that would be defining the campaign for you? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, I would put it this way. Number one, I had this this deep conviction that these hateful, vicious trolls can't win, that their trolling cannot succeed. So you cannot encourage more of this by surrendering to it. So I had that deep conviction that you cannot allow this to deter you. At the same time, I felt like I had a sacred obligation as a parent to my daughter to protect her. And those two feelings were moving simultaneously through me. And, and, and to this day, uh, I would say that, that the threats did not make, were not dispositive in the decision. Um, they didn't make the final decision, but those two thoughts were going through at the same time. But there were other factors that ultimately came into play like that what? I think made it much easier to say no. Um, well, the other factors were you just begin to look at it, especially after Paul Ryan endorsed Donald Trump. Because remember, another this is something we, we haven't mentioned, but when I was thinking this through, the Speaker of the House, the most powerful Republican in the United States, had not endorsed the presumptive GOP nominee yet. So part of the equation and thinking was that, well, if, if I could come out there and I could be credible and I could, and I could demonstrate that I was a serious candidate, 
that we could make real headway within the GOP on undermining Trump and 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 possibly even clearing him out of the out of the way to take on Hillary. Uh, I know that all sounds fantastical <laughs> now in the way things worked out. But remember, at this point, Ryan hadn't endorsed. That's highly unusual. This was a highly unusual cycle. And so um, he endorsed. And when he endorsed, and then when Ryan's previous attacked us directly. I think it's also just a sort of suicide mission and a huge distraction. I think it's sort of silly to tell you the truth. So it became very clear that this wasn't a thing where we could perhaps split the GOP uh, or uh, or really come up through the GOP, but we are going to have to be truly well outside, um, coming in as a true independent, and then really cut off from those GOP fundraising networks and things like that. And at that point, you're like, well, wait a minute. I, I, I don't have the name recognition, um, although there are people who had stepped forward and were going to be very generous to launch the campaign. I don't have anything like the funding to start out with to purchase the name recognition, so to speak, even a two to three day news cycle um, to start a campaign would not grant that name recognition. And then you're knocking around the country as who's that guy, you know, that's coming on Thursday night to, you know, First Baptist Church uh, to talk. Who's that guy? And it's, the, it's that guy that plays video games and won't let his wife talk to men. That's that guy. <laughs> exactly. You typecast is it's that, yeah, it's that anti-Trump guy who won't who plays video games and won't let and is trying to get Hillary to win. That's you know yeah. that guy. Dude, and, what was uh, the like most positive? I mean, if let's say you had done it, let's say you said yeah. you know screw it, I'm going to do this. What was the most positive outcome you could envision realistically? <laughs> realistically, the most favorable outcome possible that you start with sufficient funding. Great message. Proper capitalization on the inevitable Trump gaffes and outrages that were going to occur. And that gives you at least enough stature to get on the debate stage, distinguish yourself on the debate stage, and and perhaps create a situation where this the election gets thrown into the House. But then the longer this went on, the more I realized the realistic impact is I spent six months of my life going around the country to pull Ralph Nader level support in various states. And that would be probably enough to guarantee a Trump loss and hand the election to Hillary Clinton, which I did not want to do. Uh, There are people who don't ask me because I won't tell you who they are, who were talking to me, who were just fine with that outcome. Um, That, but I was not, I did not want to be the guy who, potentially the most realistic impact I would have would be to hand this to Hillary Clinton. I didn't want to be the Ralph Nader of 2016. And when I'm looking at that as the most realistic outcome, to the extent I had an impact at all, which that's an open question, to the extent I had an impact at all, it would have been to hand the election to Hillary Clinton. I just, no, no, that that's that was not something I wanted to do. So after all this, you would have actually preferred Trump, a Trump presidency? No, I didn't know. I honestly didn't know. How close did you come at one point to saying, okay, let's do it? I mean, probably more early on in your decision-making. Yeah, you know, actually closer than you might think and probably closer than was wise. <laughs> I, I, uh, after the first news cycle, when sort of this who is David French Googling um, was, ta- it was taking off. Uh, but, you know, there were some really positive things that happened during this. I started getting contact from people around the country saying, I will quit my job right now to come help you. Uh, people I hadn't heard from in a, in a long time. There were people offering to quit uh, their jobs and come help without even knowing me. And so, you know, it's kind of like, um, was it Churchill, Churchill who said, there's nothing more exhilarating than being shot at and missed? Uh, <laughs> With that first news cycle broke, and I wasn't, although I received an enormous amount of blowback, I wasn't destroyed. I felt like something like that, that they had swung at me and they had missed and I was still standing. And then that started to make me feel like this thing is, is might this could possibly happen. And then um, after the Ryan endorsement, the, pre, the Ryan's previous attacks, um, I began to get a more realistic view of what this was so what you may not know is that um jason actually had handed me his letter of resignation to go work for your campaign (laughs) had you jumped into the race
Journalists have sure. to stick together. Yeah. Writers have to stick <laughs> together. Sorry, I shouldn't have revealed that. But fortunately, it didn't happen, and we still have Jason here. Um, after you were, after you said you weren't going to do it, was there ever a point during the campaign where you regretted your decision? No. No, 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 no. I feel like uh, at some point in that period of time, I, uh, I was, uh, let me put it this way. I was about to take leave. Of, I, I came close to taking leave of my good sense during the process. And during the process, I re- ultimately recovered my good sense. Um, and, and I have not regretted it one second. I don't regret thinking about it. Uh, I, I don't regret considering it. I, I don't regret any of that. And I don't regret saying no. Uh, in fact, the night of the election, we're driving back, uh, was at a watch party in Nashville. I'm driving back and I look at my wife and I said, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And she said that we're glad that we didn't run. And I said, yes. Because um, when you looked at the margin, that hundred, that less than 100,000 in a few states, to the extent that I had an impact, if I could have even had an impact, would it have been to that scale to tip it um, for Clinton? That thought, I just, I, I couldn't abide that thought. Conservative writer and lawyer David French has decided not to launch an independent bid for the White House. On Sunday night, French announced, here is a sentence I never thought I'd type. I'm not going to run as an independent candidate for the president of the United States. (laughs) He says after much time in prayer, he has decided against seeking the presidency. Trump can breathe a sigh of relief. He won't have to face David French. Was there something you learned about the political system or the media climate um, with respect to your brief potential entry into the presidential race? Maybe something you didn't realize about how journalists or commentators treat candidates? You know, no. I knew it was brutal. I mean, I knew that the atmosphere was brutal. Um, Being on the receiving end of it as a... um, as a as a person who's a potential candidate was of course a new experience. I mean, of course uh, that that kind of experience um, changes your perspective in some way, as all new experiences do. Um, I think for me, one of the really big impacts was, you know, I deeply appreciate um, thoughtful criticism. You know, even if it hurts because it's got merit, <laughs> um, but that that the vicious cruelty, the personal attacks. One of the first things that it made me do was sort of go back and ask myself, because I've been a guy writing about people, writing about issues for a long time. And I thought, have I ever been vicious? Have I ever attacked a person rather than an idea? And now I'm not going to say there's never a time you should attack a a person. (laughs) But um, my general view is you attack ideas, not people. That's my general position in life. And I thought, have I ever crossed the line inappropriately? And, and it really caused me to do some soul searching about my, uh, my the way that I wrote, the way that I engaged in the public sphere. Was I part of the problem ultimately was, you know, a question I ended, ended up asking myself. And did you look at your past works and find things that you were upset? That yeah. You were? So I went back and, and, you know, gosh, I didn't read everything, but I kind of one thing that I did reflect on was this alt-right issue. And I remember writing about Gamergate in a print magazine story. And I really, in reflecting upon that story, I didn't really believe, I think, of the complaints that I was hearing online about the existence of this alt-right phenomenon and the way that it was wielding just the most vicious kind of personal attacks and slurs on people. I didn't understand and I didn't comprehend that and I think I viewed Gamergate much more through sort of a standard left-right lens, culture war lens. And so therefore, you know, I, I'm sure that the, that I, what I did is I, I minimized the very real experience that people were enduring at the hands of the alt-right and that. And I feel bad about to this day. And in fact, I probably should write that I feel bad about that to this day. Because that's one thing I look back and I thought, oh, you, that thing that I was experiencing, other people did as well. And even, even if they were people ideologically that I really, really don't agree with, no human being merits that treatment. Have you thought of running again, maybe for city council, mayor? <laughs> I'm higher. 2020, presidential, you know. Yeah, right. So can I, 
Can I do it in like a three to four day uh, span? <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, like maybe like. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, that was a highly unusual time. I mean, you know, you're sitting there and you really are feeling like not just a political party is being hijacked, but also the faith movement uh, that's been a part of your whole life is being hijacked. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't really, it's hard to describe. I mean, I, well, I tried to describe it. I wrote about it a lot. Um, you know, the, 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 the problems I had with all of that. It's hard for me to foresee, it's hard for me to foresee a similar kind of circumstance arising. Uh, we have, you know, there are politicians far more talented than me out there. And uh, I feel like I should stick to what I do best. Uh, but that was a highly unusual time, a highly unusual thought process, a highly unusual set of circumstances. I can't imagine replicating it. That was attorney, Iraq war vet, and National Review writer David French. Candidate Confessional is produced and edited by Zach Young. Yes, Zach, I will mention this. You also happen to write our theme music. You're going to do this on everyone. Everyone. Now, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And also spread the word. I always say this, but families and friends will even take complete strangers. Just tell them about the show. Next week on our show, we have a very special, interesting guest. The congressman who became famous for buying blow. Trey Radel sits down and talks to us about the human side of serving in office. See you then. Flexibility, take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.